This week on A Lively Experiment, the Attorney General forces the governor's hand, saying the public has the right to see details of the outrageous behavior by a state employee. And the head of a business watchdog group issues a warning about Rhode Island's burgeoning budget. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr., for over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us for the analysis, attorney and former state representative, Mike Marcello. Dave Lehman, corporate communications consultant and former television news anchor and political strategist, Lisa Pelosi. Hello and welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. Former President Trump has been indicted again. We'll have a few thoughts on that a little later. But first, Rhode Island had its own documents drama this week when the Attorney General ordered Governor McKee to release an explosive email detailing the outrageous behavior of a high-ranking administration employee doing the state's business in Philadelphia several months ago. McKee had refused to release the email, but Peter Nerona said in a public disclosure, a public disclosure of the disturbing contact of the employee outweighed his right to privacy. So, Lisa... We all got a chance to read this, and now we know why Governor McKee fought so hard to keep this under wraps. And you know what I was expecting? It came out yesterday. We're taping on a Friday. I thought it'd be a Friday afternoon dump, you know, but maybe yeah. he didn't want one more news, you know, 24-hour news cycle to come through. We all knew that there was something in these emails because what had been generally reported over the past couple months, but when they were revealed yesterday and you read them, it was stunning, some of the things I read. So I know we all want to comment on it. I'll take the one about what um, Mr. Patton said to the female executive. I'm thinking, this isn't the 1950s anymore. I didn't think men <laughs> nowadays know that this is not appropriate behavior. Yeah. The brief setup is, for those who don't know, uh, two people went down to Philadelphia. They're trying to work with a company to restore the Cranston Street Armory. I think what was disturbing was it was almost like they were members of a rock star band. We want this type of coffee. We want this type of food. Open up restaurants. It was like it was just outrageous behavior for anybody, let alone state employees. So, Mike, as you're reading that, what are you thinking? I was shocked. Uh, I, think the, I think the other underlying story is that uh, that balancing test that was put in the law when I was there is actually my bill. A little prior, proud of that. Uh, the balancing test, the way the public writes the note versus the privacy interests of the individual, actually worked in this case because it does show bad government behavior. And I think the attorney general and he needs to get credit and his staff for writing a very, very sound opinion that would you know, force the release of this stuff. And hopefully send a message that, as he said, and we'll get to APRA a little bit later, but that the open records law is a floor, not a ceiling. Correct. And so you can withhold, but you don't have to. Dave? Right. Yeah, I, I just, uh, I was shocked, at, as you said you were, uh, when, when I read it. Uh, this is where I think the governor is not well served. Something like this, which was so denigrating to the state of Rhode Island. Remember, these are state officials going down there, basically telling these guys, you better put on a good show for us if you want this $55 million contract. And here's what we want. Here's what we need. And I think... Uh, the governor, I'm sure he had to be, he's a decent guy. I'm sure he was outraged by that. I think this is where your own personal sense of value ought to take over. And within the limits of the law, which he had, the, had I guess, the right it, for, in his mind to hold back on this, I think he should have used his own common sense. And, said, and get out in front of it. And get right out in front of it and say, you know what, because he hasn't handled some other issues as well with other, other people who've gotten into trouble. 
I think he's got to learn from this because uh, this was really insulting to the people that, uh, that, that they were meeting with in Philadelphia, and it was insulting for the state. And, and to the credit of this company, they let the government know what was going on? Most in most business practices, they would just keep their mouth shut because there's a $55 million contract at stake. At stake, and I, I give the the company credit uh, for reporting this to the governor, and and I think the governor should have followed through and said, "We don't do this in my administration." I think they, they always cry personnel. We can't really talk about it because the personnel matter. There are ways to get around that if you want to. Yes. Yeah, so uh, again, the statement that they put out yesterday, saying that they were, you know, because of an ongoing investigation, that they couldn't say anything more. They could have said exactly what you were saying that we hold our state employees to high standards. They could have done a little bit more with this. But when you read the story about his Mr. Patton's attorney alluding to that he was having a mental health crisis. You know, then, and that was the reason why he said what he did. It made me think that this behavior has been going on for more than just that one time for Philadelphia, that when he was there in Philadelphia. And what about his um, supervisor being aware of it and allowing it to happen? And then for him to be on paid administrative leave right now, that's outrageous. I thought the same thing. The, the attorney pulls the mental health card. And look, mm -hmm. we don't know what his mental health is, mm -hmm. but this guy makes $175,000 a year. To pull the mental health card and like, well, uh, and he wants his job back. He's embarrassed, but he wants to come back. What reality is this guy well, living Well, yeah, I also think that the fact that the company did write a letter to the governor basically tells you how outrageous and how out of the ordinary that conduct was. Right. I mean, I, I think some of, some of that always probably we have they're trying to wheel and deal to try to you know put up best show but I mean that was I mean it was it was it was really very insulting and and, and I hope I hope that's not how you know Rhode Island is perceived in the future and when we go out to try to get contracts and, and people to come to invest in our state that does not help us get an investment that's going to be a national it is a national story it's terrible and, and also I, I think the the important thing for the governor to have acted I think more appropriately with this at the very outset he also needs to send a message not only to the other people who work for him that we don't tolerate this and if you do something like this, I'm not going to stand for it. I'm not going to give you cover. And I think it also sends a message to the business community nationwide or worldwide that this state does not you know, condone that kind of behavior and, and I think it could make a put a little positive on a very negative story. I will tell you that the... Um it's what we call a full Rhode Island, and not everybody out there will know who Jeff Britt is, but when I immediately saw Jeff Britt, Jeff Britt has been a political operative in this state for years, and I texted him yesterday, I said, of course there's a Jeff Britt angle. He was the one, I guess it was their client, and he sent it to, and then that, but I mean, Jeff, we were talking, what, three years ago about Jeff Britt being on trial for another thing? It's it's just, I don't know if that struck you as Yeah, funny. I did too, and I thought, oh, that's right, there's Jeff Britt again. <laughs> there's yeah. Jeff Britt, I hadn't yeah. heard about it for months. Yeah. So, uh, getting back beyond this, what I thought was interesting, and before they released the email yesterday, what I wanted to talk about was McKee and and this dynamic with Nerona. They've gotten into a little bit of a you know personal scrape. It's had a little bit of an edge to it. But I also thought, Mike, what you talked about about the attorney general has become more active now about 
public records, and other things. And I think that's a good sign. There's actually two major decisions that this attorney general, one was when a third party controls the records uh, that the state or the entity still has to go get them if they have control over them. They can't hide behind, oh, I contracted with this company. To, that was the, the Civic Center case where they wanted, they yep. didn't release the, uh, that was, that's a major shift from the attorney general's office. And, and this decision, this was a, a really good decision. Um, co contrast that to the, the Chafee incident with the son uh, who was arrested, I think for, it was for drunk driving or I can't remember what the, what the incident he was. Was. There was a party, party out a party in Exeter, Exeter right. Ralph Mollett. It's right. a whole other road. And, 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 and state police and were involved, right, and they wouldn't release it. Well, and the Supreme Court actually backed that up. But this is this is uh, actually a very, uh, I think it's a more opening, more more uh, uh, more open interpretation of the law in, in, in favor of more disclosure, public disclosure of some of these things. We've had a history of attorneys general speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm really high. But when it comes right down mm -hmm. to it, the enforcement on the local level, if you try to get documents now, <laughs> a lot of public officials know we can run the clock out on you mm -hmm. because it's too much effort. Or about, they try to charge yeah. you for it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's a deterrent. Thousands of what, dollars. What yeah. about this dynamic with the governor and the attorney general? You know, I was trying to think if I've ever seen that happen before in, in my history of being alive, you know, between a governor and a, an attorney general, and I haven't seen that. So it kind of, I think it goes back to last year's NILO investigation. Mm -hmm. So the tension there between the governor and the attorney general, and then now we've seen it play through. I know we're talking about the budget, about the attorney general wanting more money and more personnel, mm -hmm. and then the governor saying no initially but in the end, the attorney general won out. So it's an interesting dynamic that's going on. And the on. chief of staff issue, too, with the, uh, the, the Cumberland land that's issue. That's right. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we shall see. Uh, much of the focus at the State House this week has been on the state budget. It looks a lot different than the one, a little bit different than the one that Governor McKee proposed in January. But it's the size of the budget that has caught the attention of the Rhode Island Public Expenditure Council. Five years ago, the General Assembly passed a budget that was just over $9 billion, reflecting a steady yearly increase in spending the past two decades. The proposed budget for next year, more than $14 billion, a 50% increase and even more than Governor McKee had proposed in January. A lot of it is COVID relief money, which is going to go away very soon. Michael DBA's heads up the Rhode Island Public Expenditure Council a nonprofit business watchdog group. He says there are several factors resulting in the eye-popping bottom line. Yeah, taxes went up considerably. Some of that's inflation, right? I mean, some of that is that, you know, people were making more money, things are more expensive to buy, so sales taxes go up. But the, the, there was PPP loans and unemployment relief and also just the economy ran a lot hotter. So does that mean though that the overall 14 billion could come back into the 13 billion dollar range? No, I think the total budget number will come down. It's come down this year from last year because that federal pandemic money is going down. The state general revenue uh, spending will not likely go down, but it's a much slower growth rate. The influx of federal money has given state leaders a reprieve from chronic deficits that have become an annual rite of passage. It wasn't that long ago we were looking at 200, 250 million, 300 million deficit going back to maybe 17 and 18. Do you see storm clouds on the horizon in the out years? I wouldn't say storm clouds, but it's just if you're spending, you know, if you're growing your spending by you know six, seven, eight percent a year, and then the next year it's two and a half. It's going to mean a lot uh, of difficult um, decisions. We're going to have to look at you know are all the programs working? Do some of them need to be cut back or consolidated? Um, that's going to be a different environment. 
For my entire conversation with Mike DBAs, you can head over to our Rhode Island PBS YouTube page. The entire interview is posted there. Mike, 50% increase. Do you remember what the budget was when you were there? $8.5 billion. And what year did you leave? Uh, 16. Yeah. yeah. So as you look at this, the thing that also struck me was Governor McKee, in one of those rapid-fire debate things last year, Tim White said, you know, what's the budget going to be next year when we – now, maybe he was a year ahead. The governor said maybe 11 or $12 billion. So he knew the COVID, and clearly that's not reflected. What do you think as you look at these numbers? I think they're out – it's unbelievable how quickly the budget has increased, but I do think the federal money – there, and there was money that needed to be spent on, you know, the vaccination clinics and all the school stuff and, and, and whatnot – but the question is, is it sustainable in the future? And, and right now, it's easy to get these programs through because there's money to spend. The hard part comes when the money goes away. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have to do, as Mr. DBA said, do some evaluation. I'm not so sure that we're great at doing evaluation and actually cutting programs. Um, so it's going to be very, very interesting. And will that budget come down to 12 or $13 billion if that federal money's not there? I mean, we're, we don't have a history of going backwards. No. I, uh, I talked with uh, Speaker Shikarchi uh, yesterday and uh, asked him about this, about you know, this money funding new programs that when this federal money goes away, how are we going to be able to fund this? And he made a very uh, uh, pointed uh, comment to me. He said, Dave, we worried about that, knowing that we, you know, we have these federal funds. And he said, I, he, he ballparked it for me, that 90% of the money that's being spent of federal money was for one-time only uh, plugins, if you will, that uh, only probably 10% might be for programs that will continue on that would require state tax support in the future. But he said they were mindful of this and worried about that. And he said they put kind of a, a governor, if you will, uh, not, not the governor of the state, a governor on their spending uh, proposals so that that would not happen. Investment, so, not spending. It, right. The one-time investment. I, exactly. Yeah, plugging holes here and there that, that will be taken care of but will not require future state money to support that going on forward. Yeah, they uh, decided to go forward with the Rhode Island College free tuition bill, and they're using federal money for that. So it's a pilot program for five years. But again, it's one of those in that 10% out of the, you know, right. the, you know, for the 90, that they're putting out there <coughs> for students, you're going to get this free tuition for five years, and then what's going to happen in, yeah. in 2028? We're going to say, nope, we don't have any more money. That would be very hard to take away. Well, Absolutely. that's what yeah. they, with the CCRI. Once yeah. the promise went there, so that that was a new program, and I, although they call it, a, and I asked Mike DBAs about that, he said it's a pilot program, but it becomes an entitlement program, mm -hmm. doesn't it? Like, it's very hard to take away to, to say to your constituents, oh, by the way, this year we're going to cut the funding. That's, I mean, that's a political suicide for anybody. But. What else struck you in the budget? I, I know on the show earlier when um, I came on right after Governor McKee got reelected, and I was expecting a bold budget from him. And we didn't get, I didn't see anything bold come out, coming out of him. So when the sales tax went down, I think we all agreed that that little incremental yeah. decrease wasn't going to make a difference. I think what I came away was thinking, Governor McKee got a few breadcrumbs. That, that you can really tell that who was in charge of the budget was the Senate president and the Senate uh, and the House speaker. And that what, they're, they're, what was really important to them came through in the budget. Almost like the years we had Republican governors, right? Oh, I remember that, yes. <laughs> Jim, I, 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 a little nostalgia here. Uh, when I read the $14 billion, I remembered uh, when I was covering the General Assembly many years ago, uh, I remember anchoring that night on the news that the lead headline was 
For the first time in history, the Rhode Island state budget is going to be over $1 billion. <laughs> How far we've covered. <laughs> well, they used to report at the journal, in all fairness, they used to report only the state portion. portion. Yeah. And so now the federal really, but well, but uh, but Mike in the DBAs in the RIPEC report, he talked about general revenues and then the federal, and they'd both gone up dramatically. It used to be 50, 50, like 44.5 used to be state and then the 44 billion would be federal money. But I think the other things that are not in the budget that were controversial in the beginning were uh, there's no, t they didn't touch the school aid form funding formula, which was a, a priority of at least the Senate president mm -hmm. or the Senate majority leader at the time. But they did give more money to, uh, to schools to bridge the gap uh, for, because of the COVID and the, and the loss of students. So that's not in the budget. I think that's, uh, I think that we'll, we're going to see a fight over the school funding formula probably next year. Also, and there are some other uh, major issues that, that didn't get funded. Uh, the Superman building, that, yeah. that didn't get funded. The tide Water, uh, <laughs> the troubled Tidewater Pawtucket Soccer Stadium uh, didn't get any money. Cranston Street Armory, the uh, South Quay uh, offshore wind uh, power staging terminal, the Taunton Avenue Collaborative, uh, none of that got any money. And I was kind of surprised. I thought some of that would, would yeah. get some rescue money. But I do think yeah. they kind of probably play that off the tangible tax. The exemption, the and that's big for that, that is very big, and, mm -hmm. and the Senate president gets a lot of credit for that. That was his priority, uh, and he wanted a 100% exemption, but he, they compromised, and I think he got $50,000 would be tax-free at the tangible. And tangible taxes are high at the, at the municipal levels, there's no question about and it. And modest COLA relief, cost of living for retirees, probably not as much as they want. Were you in the legislature during, the, during that yes. pension? Yes, reform? I was. I yes. mean, so that brings yes. back a little Three times I think I voted for pension reform, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah um, I, I looked at the bill. I don't really I don't understand the formula and how they got to it. The overlying question is how is that going to affect the sustainability of the pension by putting the caller in early? I'm sympathetic to the people who said, look, I'm never going to get, um, you know, never see the benefit of a cola. The fact that inflation has been higher than it normally has been for the last couple of years, the, the pensions have decreased because of the cost of inflation. But the real question is, how much is that going to cost and how much that will delay getting to the full funded 80% that they want. And don't forget, there's a part of that pension that's get paid by the municipality. So if they change the formula and they change the amount they paid out, it only goes back to the property taxpayers who has to pay it at yeah. the local level. I was wondering how far out the year is going to be, have right. to push a little mm -hmm. bit further. But just one point, I looked it up. Our budget is almost twice the budget of New Hampshire. And New Hampshire has 300,000 more residents than we do. Granted, we have a little bit different demographic, but yeah. when I, I did a story four or five years ago about what the legislature spends on itself. And it was, at that point, it was $44 million for a part-time legislature. When I went back and looked at the budgets, we having, before 2000, before this whole big, before 2019, the budget goes up about a billion dollars every four years. Now, not necessarily concurrent with a governor's term, but over the course of four years, a billion dollars, that's just not sustainable in the long run. No, well, and, and Speaker Shikarchi also told me that he said, you, one thing you have to remember is, as you were pointing out, I think about 40% of our overall budget comes from the Fed, something in, in that area, which I, I didn't realize it was that high. But he said, you have to understand that a lot of the federal dollars that show up in the budget are passed through. They're right. not things that we've generated. These are, it comes through and gets, and gets spent. And he said, the last thing we were going to do with this budget was to leave any federal dollars on the table that were rightfully ours that we could claim that would not encumber us going forward. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's a responsible approach, even though it, federal dollars are still our dollars, too, you know. But wouldn't it make sense, though, that the ARPA, with all this money that's been passed through the budget and you have to account for it, that that bottom line number's got to be less next year, right? 12 or 13 you would billion? I think so. And I think, I think they, 
they, they kind of accounted for that to, to make the one-time payments. But it's, we'll see. I mean, the, Depart the Department of Health is pretty much funded by federal dollars. The Rhode Island DEM is funded almost 80%, 90% by federal dollars. So those pass-throughs will remain. But it's the extra programs, the, the, the school funding stuff that they did with the COVID relief, mm -hmm. the housing was a big, big uh, tranche of money that came through. So this probably is still, and don't forget, the Republicans in the in the federal level, they just, they just clawed some of that money back. So yeah. they were very worried about that, how much that clawback of unspent COVID money at the state level would be clawed back by the federal government as a result of Last the um, budget. I, I think Michael DBAs said to you that he anticipates to see the budget uh, come back down. Uh, in your interview with him, he yeah. basically acknowledged that. Well, I will tell you, it'll be interesting to see um, in the out years, if, if we do start running into deficits, will the, pro, will the uh, car tax you know, that was always the one that oh, they clawed yeah. back. So we don't, I mean, clearly now, to their credit, we don't pay any ta uh, property taxes on our cars, but five years from now we'll be having that discussion. Mm -hmm. All right, another hot bill uh, that they're looking at at the legislature is awarding uh, disability pensions, tax-free disability pensions for firefighters who have post-traumatic stress disorder. There are a number of bills floating around about various things, some about hypertension. I think this one, I was doing radio earlier this week. I was filling in for Tara Granahan, and boy, this really lit up the lines on both sides. I think firefighters say we see a lot of stuff that we can't get over. Other people were like, that's the job you signed up for. Amen. Amen. And I remember a journal article going back many years ago that, that pointed out, and I think uh, Mark Patinkin may have referenced this in his own article, that 86%, I think the figure was, 86% of the firefighters eventually going out, go out on disability pensions, which is two-thirds of their salary tax-free. And you know, uh, I had a uh, Providence police officer uh, uh, when I was doing a story way back at Channel 6, and he was telling me that he said you'd be surprised at the way some of these uh, public servants that we revere, uh, police officers and firefighters, do a little finagling to support each other in, in getting uh, out on a pension. That there's, there's a lot of finagling that was going on back then. I don't know that that's true today, but boy, this is, this is really something that, that uh, abuse could be uh, rampant with this thing. Well, Patinkin's article said you only have to go to Minnesota yeah. because they passed it and then a year later it had gone up 120%. Sure. Sure. I know. So, you know, to begin with, we really have to thank all the men and women who serve because this is public safety and this is number one. This is what government should be doing and what government should be supporting. But on the other hand, we talk about sustainability of the budget. How are we going to be able to sustain these pensions going forward, and especially if you start putting compound COLA increases on top of it? So I think there needs to be a very high standard that you need to be able to meet to qualify for a permanent disabled pension. And, this, and the standard in the bill basically says if it's certified by a person with a master's degree, it, you has to be recognized <laughs> injured on duty. It is it is a poorly written statute to begin with. I will say at the municipal level, we are already grappling with the issue with the cancer for firefighters statute that was passed two years ago, and basically it says if you get cancer as a firefighter, you're automatically presumed to be job related, and then has it also has another part of it if you're a retired firefighter and you have cancer, it's presumed to be job related. And we are getting now at the at the local level people who are claiming uh, um, you know prostate cancer when they're 80 years old, that, that's, that's, that, that they're entitled to a disability pension. My, my favorite example, and I have a brother who's a firefighter, and I, I will tell you that they do see horrendous stuff, but my favorite you know, hypothetical is a retired firefighter goes out, golfs 
uh, every day for the next six day, you know, six years without any sunscreen develops um, <laughs> skin cancer on his nose or her, her nose. Mm. And under the statute, there's an argument could be made that that could qualify for a disability pension. We should mention, you're the solicitor in East Providence, so you're right on the front lines yeah. on this. I think it's the devil <clears throat> is in the details as usual. Who's going to qualify? I did have a former fire chief call in when I was doing radio. He said, I said, what percentage do you think will go out on this? And he said, I think it'll be one or two percent. And I, I don't know. I don't know. It's the way the statute's written. I did have a conversation with someone who serves on a pension board in Connecticut, and they indicated that they Connecticut recently changed this, and they saw an uptick in the PSTD. PSTD. Shouldn't there be a restriction that if you're on a pension that you cannot qualify to do another job? Like the heavy hitter. Or or at least get a a cutback from a... a, Exactly, a clawback. Almost like alimony. (laughs) You've got to pay back the difference. All right, let's go to outrages and or kudos. I'm making an executive decision now. Uh, We had too much national stuff. We're going to do a lively extra. We'll tell you about that in a minute, so stay tuned. Lisa, what do you have this week? So I have both. It's a kudos and an outrage. So kudos to the media for really persisting on this uh, Philadelphia story to get the emails out and the deep dive that they've been doing into the contract that the state has. So my outrage is dual. One, I looked at the proposal that Scout has come forward to use the Cranston Armory, that state and federal money, the ARPA money, to use indoor soccer, state offices, incubator, is this really the best use of the money to begin with? So I was questioning that. And then on top of it, the contract allows Scout to continue to have $25,000 a month going forward. I guess it might be as a retainer. And we've known for months that we're not going forward with this proposal, so we're still giving them money. It's for so, all that designer coffee and the well, vegan cheese. we got to pull the plug on this because we have to be better stewards of the money. I know we have this $14 billion budget, but $25,000 becomes fifty, becomes 100000 And just think of all the nonprofit groups could really be benefiting and helping Rhode Islanders with that money instead. That's a good point. Mike, what do you have? So Mike, Mike goes to kudos. I go to the U.S. Supreme Court and kudos for them on a 5-4 decision that actually strengthened, I believe, and actually gave some new life into the Voting Rights Act where they uh, recently ruled yesterday, I believe, that uh, the state of Alabama had to redraw, redraw their congressional districts to allow uh, one more a majority, a minority district uh, for black vote, black voters or minority voters in that state, and I think it was a, a landmark decision. There was the, the lawyers amongst amongst us were, were concerned that uh, the because of the conservative bent of the Supreme Court that that was going to further dilute. But uh, the Roberts Court uh, seemed to do the right thing, in my well, opinion. And in that case, Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. voted in the affirmative. And every newscast I heard was, in a surprising move. There's no way they ever expected. Do you think that's going to have a ripple effect? I know that's going on in a lot of the southern states. Is that going to send a message to the southern states, get your act we, together? We can only hope so, but I think so, yes. I hope so. Yeah. Okay. Dave, what do you have? Uh, paraphrasing the century-old quote, all that's needed for evil to succeed is for the good people to stand by and do nothing. We are watching Hypocrisy 101, and this is my outrage of the week. Isn't it amazing that all these politicians who are the sycophants, the enablers of Donald Trump, suddenly are now decrying Donald Trump as being a horrible person, a terrible president, and so forth. A good example, Bill Barr, former U.S. Attorney General, appointed by Trump, ended up making the, the Justice Department essentially the Trump law firm, the defense team for, the law, for, for, the, for Trump. Now he gets on television, 
writes a book talking about how bad Trump was, and yet he enabled him all those years. Former Vice President Mike Pence, again, declaring this week, here's a guy who is a poster child, in my view, of cowardice, of spinelessness, of uh, practiced sincerity. Here's a guy who stood by this president and said literally nothing until January the 6th. That was the one time he finally had a little bit of spine. And I think uh, it's just outrageous that a guy like him is now running for office after, you know, enabling this, this president. Then Chris Christie, the former uh, <laughs> New Jersey governor who begged, begged Trump for a job in his administration. He's been an ardent supporter, sometimes, you know, criticized him. But now today he calls Trump basically unfit for office. And the list goes on. I, I mean, there are 10 other people I could mention. The point is, these are not the kind of people who deserve our respect. And frankly, in my view, they don't deserve our vote. They were the cowards all along the way. They knew it and they lack the courage, and that is my outrage. All right, let's use that as a springboard into talking about the Trump indictment and what's going on in the presidential race. We will do an online bonus feature. We call it Lively Extra. If you go right now to ripbs.org slash lively, we'll do another 10 minutes. For those of you who can't watch, we will bid adieu to Dave and Lisa and Mike. Thank you for joining us. Come back here next week. Hope you can watch Lively Extra, but if you can't, come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week. And welcome back to our online bonus segment. We call it Lively Extra when 30 minutes is just not enough. This week, folks, we could have used maybe about two hours, but, you know, we know you have other things to do. Uh, we were talking about uh, presidential politics, Trump's indictment. Lisa, I know as a faithful Republican, yeah. this has been a tough six or eight years. Um, so let's talk about the Trump indictment first. He, he's already fundraising off of it. That's no surprise. It's a hoax or whatever. I wonder at some point... How much gum is on his shoe going forward with these indictments? I think there's a lot of gum there, but I think the question becomes, does he still retain the support that he's been able to maintain over these years? And what struck me is that what I've been trying to do since 2016 is understand the Trump voter. Who is this person? Why does this person stay with him? What is it that Tr Donald Trump is saying and doing that's resonating, that no matter how many court cases, how many obscene incidents in his past come forward, they stand by his side. So we have to better understand why people are connecting with him and not others to better understand, you know, as much as the, the court cases have to play out, why his voters still be standing behind him? Mike? Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting. Um, I think we have to remember that there was a judge who looked at the search warrant and gave probable cause to the crime was committed for him to search for these records. Now there's a probable cause to believe a crime was committed by a, a jury of his, a grand jury of his peers that they violated numerous acts. We don't know. I think they said this morning on one of the uh, radio shows it was the Espionage Act. I think we've got to let the process play out, but I mean, it's not, he's playing the game, this, uh, this is a, I'm, I'm a target, they're going after me because, you know, I, I was cleaning up the swamp and this is what happens when you try to clean up the swamp. I personally think he is the swamp. He's been in the swamp for a long time. I think it's finally coming to light. I think he used the White House and his office to benefit him and his family. I think, it, and I, don't, I just don't understand the, the, the amount of documents that he took, allegedly took, 
that in Mar-a-Lago classified? I mean, what, what was the purpose of that? Why were you, you know, storing these in a garage or wherever they were? Like, well, why? Was he going to trade it? Was he, or is his ego so big that he wants to say, oh, I knew this secret plan to, you know, bomb Iran or do something? I, I just don't get it. Justice, our resident attorney, in all the coverage I read last night, now, we haven't seen the indictment. We know it's coming. He says, I'm getting indicted. Are those all felonies? Yeah. That he's facing. I it's not they, misdemeanors. No, these are all felonies. Okay. So, um, you know, and but and I heard a little bit of commentary this morning. He will be facing. There was a lot of controversy when he faced the uh, the, the civil charge in New York. All oh, the New York jury pool is, you know, so anti-Trump. Now he's going to be facing a, a jury pool, I think, in Miami County or uh, Dade County, Florida, which is obviously more friendly. More friendly to yeah. him. So we'll see how that process plays mm -hmm. out. But I think we have to let the process mm -hmm. play out. To answer the question that you posed uh, or that you discussed about trying to figure out the, the Trump voter. I, I've, I've been doing the same thing. Uh, we're on parallel tracks. I have to tell you, uh, I think it's, it really is a combination of, I hate to say it, I think it's a, a white person's fear of what's coming in this country with immigration and so forth. But I think for most of, the, of Trump's term, I have to tell you, I think it's, I call it the 401k presidency, because when, when he was in office, uh, and of course he, he inherited some good uh, economy when he took office, but because he was saying a lot of things that people were concerned about their money and their 401ks did enormously well during the Trump era. I think people became fearful that if they changed, uh, you know, horses, if you will, that their their money would go away. And gas prices were low. And gas, oh, I mean, you know, there, there was a good economy. And, and I've had arguments with very good friends of mine, uh, and I'm not a Republican or a Democrat, I'm an independent. Uh, and uh, I came to the conclusion that it's a lot of it, it it's a white man's fear, and I think that's a, a, an awful thing. I, I think you're, you have, on the economic stuff, I think you're right. I When I was uh, campaigning locally for a local office, I, you know, I met a couple of women who basically said, look, I don't like what he does. I don't like what he says, but my 401k, my retirement is, is sound and, and I'm doing well. And right. I want that to continue. And I think the, the economics behind it. I do think there's a lot of frustration, however. I think both parties, there's a, there's a feeling amongst the public that both parties have let them down. There are groups of people in our country who are struggling, who can't get ahead, who are not getting good education, who, who, who believe the system is, 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 is uh, against them. And, and he kind of plays into that, but I. They, but the other stuff that they just ignore, I just don't. I don't get it. You unless. talked about the swamp, and yeah. so when back in '16, when all of us thought, oh, there's no way he's going to win the primary, there's no way he's going to win the election. <laughs> I, the, I, the Trump voter, you asked about it, and I yeah. did a lot of talk radio back then. They looked at Washington as the swamp. Yeah. And there could not have been a worse candidate than Hillary Clinton because th th she just embodied all of the Clintons, the, uh, the Kennedys, you know, going back kind of these dynasty that they had turned into. And I will tell you, Dave, you know, you talk about being an independent. It's the first time in my life I did not vote for a presidential candidate mm -hmm. in 2016. I couldn't stomach Trump and I couldn't stomach mm -hmm. Hillary. My wife personally holds me responsible. She He's like, you're the reason why <laughs> Trump got it. But, you know, Rhode Island was a foregone conclusion. But I understood that frustration. But I think Trump has lost a lot of those people because he gave, they gave him four years to do whatever, and then he kind of went off the rails. So I think he's got his base, 
but I'm not sure that he can bring in the fringe voters that actually Joe Biden got, and that's why he won. Because well, he, he get, went back he, to Pennsylvania, Ohio, he, those yeah. Rust Belt He, he won't states. get the independence uh, with all that's uh, un unraveling now. Uh, one other point I'd like to make, and Mike, uh, picking up on your comments, I think there's another aspect behind the Trump insurgency, uh, you know, five, six, seven years ago. And I've had not had anybody else say this, so I don't know if I'm just way, way off on this. I think it's a frustration with the U.S. Congress, watching Congress. If you recall, several uh, sessions ago, it was listed as the greatest do-nothing Congress. And, right. and they got nothing done because they were all fighting on ideology. And I think Donald Trump came in with a message, I'm going to clean up this crap. I'm going to get stuff done because they saw Congress you know, we, we pay a lot of money. These folks make $175,000 a year, and they get paid no matter what they do if they do nothing. They're and making the same amount as David Patton's making. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Finally, we just have a couple minutes left. So go ahead. I what have one point that came to my mind today. What happens if Donald Trump gets convicted and he gets sentenced to jail? Would there be a movement for um, President Biden to pardon him? <laughs> and what would he do? And if would he do it for the sake of the country, like we saw Jerry Ford with mm -hmm. Richard Nixon, and then end up losing re-election himself because he did that? That's a scenario. That's a novel. Oh. Well, President Biden would be like, he's going to the helicopter. I'm sorry, what did you say? Pardon? I can't hear what you're saying. Just quickly, we have a minute and a half left. So the Republican Party now, and Trump's the elephant in the room, but so, you know, again, if there was ever right picking. You got an 80-year-old guy who even the Democrats say is is a flawed candidate. So who's who's going to be the alternative to Trump? So there are 12, I think, right now running yeah. against him. And 12 today. 12. Okay, yeah. today. And for me as a Republican, I'm not connecting with any of them right now. The one I'm kind of looking at is Chris Christie, because I like what he did as governor, taking on the unions and being, you know, the balanced um, budget more in New Jersey. But I'm not feeling inspired by any of them right now. So, I'm, so it could very well be that a lot of people will default to Trump because they're not finding anyone else in the field that they're connecting with. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm like you. I, I really don't see. I really don't see anybody who's inspiring me to say, "Oh, hey, I, I, I'd vote for him over over Trump." It's you'd feel a little bit better if the vice president was stronger than we had now, so, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, don't you think it's a it's a Sophie's choice these days? I think that um, Joe Biden in the last co last couple weeks has shown that he can bridge the gap on some of the stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I give Kevin McCarthy credit and them from working together for a compromise. Um, Biden is not the best candidate, but if it's Trump, he's the candidate that I would be voting for it's, as a Democrat. It's interesting. So we have 12 Republicans taking on Trump, but not one Democrat right. has come forward about Biden. So they must be feeling pretty good about his chances right now. Yeah, or they don't want to take on the incumbent. It's, it's a tough thing to do. Okay, folks, even the uh, extra, extra segment goes quickly. <laughs> Dave and Lisa and Mike, again, now you can leave the studio. All right, come back next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week.